listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Those of you that have uh, a Bible with you, um, would you open to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2? And I think uh, Alex and... Uh, Sandy, are, they've got Bibles. Uh, if, you, if you need a Bible, um, grab a Bible. We'll be reading through God's Word together. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm so glad. I think as I can speak you know, for us as a body that we're, we're very glad that uh, uh, Meldon and Charlotte were able to get away this week and enjoy some time together. Boy, these br- lights are bright. Um, but yeah, this week I've been uh, working through First uh, Peter chapter 2, and uh, my heart this morning is really to, to hopefully give you a vision for what God sees, what God sees for His church, um, how, how we do community together, how we live together. And First Peter chapter 2 is going to be, um, I, I think, enlightening to us. It certainly was enlightening to me this week, so... Uh, let's, let's read this passage together, First uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 4, and we'll uh, read through verse 12. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may declare, once you were um, people for, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for that your word contains the words of life. As your disciples said, who, to whom will we go? 
You have the words of life. Father, we come to you and we open your word believing that these words are for us. Believing, God, that this word, we need this word this week to sustain us. God, you change us. You change us by your word. And Father, we pray that you would come, that you would send your spirit, that you would fill us with your spirit, Father, so that we can go from here empowered to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received, that we've received. And Father, we, I want to pray also for those here who don't know you, who are not under your smile. God, we pray that your word would pierce hearts, that it would cut, that it would divide joint and marrow, bone and spirit, Father, that people will go away convicted, not because of a preacher's eloquence, Father, but because your word is true and it bears down on our souls. God, we, we, just, we pray that you would enliven these words, make them alive to your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, about 10 years ago, I was really wrestling uh, with whether the church was even necessary to make disciples or whether there is a better way. From my perspective, the church really seemed only interested in itself. It was good at running programs and babysitting, but it appeared to be totally irrelevant to the regular guy. It was a place for moms and kids, a place where um, people who had grown up in the church, and that included me, this was, this is, I, I grew up going to the church week in, week out. But when I read God's word, I found Jesus' words unnerving. I found that they exposed me, that they struck a nerve. And from my perspective, and let me say this right up front, my perspective has changed drastically. From my perspective, the church lacked power. It lacked conviction. It just, it didn't seem to reflect Jesus' words that I was reading in God's word. And, and my observations are not unique. Um, I, I read a recent report here uh, that said last year, seven, between four and 7,000 churches closed their doors. And people, pastors, church leaders are responding to this. And, and they're coming up with solutions. And the solutions that they come up are to develop some kind of attractional model or um, to, to have a preacher who is able to preach in a motivational way, a way that encourages, a way that grabs attention. And they're adjusting the message as well. You can have your best life now. That's what, that's what they say. Is this, is this so I, I, I say this to myself, I ask it to you, is this, what the church is supposed to be? Do we have to concoct some kind of harebrained scheme in order to bring people in, in order to attract the masses? As you can probably tell, my, uh, my answer, and more importantly, God's answer is a resounding no. We don't have to do those things. That is not how God builds his church. This morning, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 to 12, we will discover what the church is, what it is supposed to do, 
and the power behind how it is able to do it. Those are the three things that we're going to look at this morning. So the first thing that we're going to, that we're going to press into is who, uh, who you are or the church's identity. Right? And the, the first thing I want to say about that is who you are is based on who he is. So when we look at verse 4, the first thing that we see here is that Jesus is a living stone. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. We want to start with the text, and the first thing that we want to ask from the text is, where does this stone language come from, right? We're right out of the gate where we see that Jesus is a living stone. Peter calls him a living stone. And then he compares us to Jesus saying that we're like him, living stones. And where does this come from? Well, if you look in your text, in your Bibles, you'll find that there's, it's, there's a section, verses uh, 6, 7, and 8. They're either italicized or they're, they're in poetic uh, form, um, they, they just look different than the rest of the text. And what you see here is the translator trying to cue you, remind you, or point, to, point this out to you that this is, this is a passage that's taken from the Old Testament. And the, the New Testament writers, you, you, need, to, you need to know, if, if you don't know this, you need to know that when they were writing this book, when they were writing this letter, when Peter was writing First uh, Peter to uh, the to the church, his Bible was the Old Testament. That's all they had was the Old Testament. And what's and uh, and you notice something about these three verses here? They all contain so so these three verses. We see it in verse uh, six, and then verse seven, and then verse eight. They all come from Old Testament passages. Verse, um, verse 6, the first one comes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. The second one in verse 7 comes from uh, Psalm 118, verse 22. And the third one in verse 8 comes from, again, from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And, and what's happening is Peter is seeing a connection between these three verses. And the connection is, and you can see it, is this, this stone. And it's... We see this throughout the New Testament. The, uh, the New Testament apostles and prophets who wrote the New Testament scriptures to us, they, they understood that all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed forward to Jesus. And that's not really remarkable. Paul does this. John, James, the, uh, the gospel writers, Mark and Luke, they all do this. They all see that the Old Testament points towards the New Testament. And in fact, Jesus says the same thing. Back in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus is, and he understood himself to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But what is unusual here is that the New Testament writers, while they regularly quoted the Old Testament and pointed to its fulfillment in Jesus, what is remarkable here is how, how Peter is applying this Old Testament quote to the church. Notice what he says in verse 
4 and 5. It, as you come to him, a living stone, all right, that's quoting the Old Testament, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So what you are is based on who he is. We see from the text that Jesus is a cornerstone. But the church are the stones that make up the rest of this structure, this, this uh, building that eventually becomes the dwelling place of God, where God lives. It's a spiritual house, Peter says. And this is amazing. This, this is absolutely remarkable. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, then you are part of this building right now. This is your identity. Brothers and sisters, the God who created the universe, think about that. The God who created the universe, he inhabits you right now. He, he's, he dwells here with you. He makes his home with you. But did you notice that, G, that Peter is speaking in the plural and not the singular? When he applies that Old Testament passage to the church, he speaks in the plural. You're not a living stone. You're living stones, plural. Everywhere in the New Testament, the authors describe the temple of God in the plural, referring to the whole church. There's one exception in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when God is, or when uh, Paul is addressing sexual immorality and he says, you are the temple of the, of, the, of the Holy Spirit. But everywhere else in the New Testament, when the, the New Testament writers are talking about the church as the temple, they're, they're, they use plural terms. And here in this passage, Peter is speaking about these stones in the plural. And, and that is critical for us to understand. These stones are being built up into a spiritual house in, in verse 4. But they're being built into a spiritual house together. It's together. Everyone together. Not individuals, right? At this point... The house, this spiritual house, is more than the sum of the parts. The parts need each other to be a building. And, and what happens is that you are no longer independent, but interdependent. That's what the church is like. They are interdependent. They need one another. So, a couple of things about buildings that should be, I think, pretty obvious to all of you. First of all, you need a lot of parts, right? You need gravel and cement and trusses and lumber and siding and insulation and wire and pipe and windows and flooring and doors and gyprock. You need nails and carpet and paint and a whole host of other things that I haven't listed, right? But if you took all of those parts and you put them in one place you still wouldn't have a building, would you? You just have a bunch of parts that make up a building. In order to get a house, all the parts have to fit together. And then what you have is not just a bunch of parts, you actually have something that is entirely new. 
you have a, a building, a structure. But in order for those, those parts to make a building, they have to be joined together. They're no longer independent. They're interdependent. That's the church. That's you. So what does this look like? No one is an island. Everyone needs one another. And this looks like, and and I'm going to say things here that are uncomfortable. This looks like living transparently. It looks like confessing sins to one another. It looks like speaking the truth in love, right? We, We... we say those things, but speaking the truth in love is, is a difficult thing to do. It means that I see something in you or you see something in me and I don't want to address it. I'm a good Canadian. I don't want to offend you, right? But love compels me to come to you and, and say what's true because I love Jesus and I love you. It, it looks like serving one another. It looks like building each other up and encouraging one another. There are over 50 one another commands in the New Testament. I I was tempted to go through all of those things, but that would take about five minutes. And it's these one another commands that ought to form the DNA, the heartbeat of Harvest Kelowna, of the church. It ought to characterize the atmosphere It ought to ooze out of our pores, these one another's. We should be all about these one another's. So how how does it happen? How do we make this happen? We've got the the, the, um, sort of the framework here. I've told you what it's supposed to be. How, How do we make this all happen? So if we go back to the text, we see that we are being built up, Right? This is a a work in progress. This is a present continuous form. You are being built up. God is doing this. It means that we are being built brick by brick. God is adding people into our midst. It means that each brick or each stone is, is being placed on top of another stone. And other stones are being placed on top of it, right? And the whole structure, it it forms one body like it's a it all it's all connected you take out a stone and what is underneath it and what is above it is weaker it's only as we live together that we are being built into the spiritual house if you are in the habit of only attending church once a week or if you only show up on Sundays to hear a sermon then you are living independently isolated It happens, and it can happen only when we live together in community. It happens when people spend time together. Time is a, is a precious commodity to us. It happens when you eat meals together. It's it, when you hang out, just, just getting together to watch a, the Super Bowl, right? It, it happens there. It happens when you serve and harvest kids together. It happens when you shovel a widow's driveway, or, or when you arrange, right? You, you, you arrange your schedule to look after somebody with a brother or sister. It happens when you go over to a brother or sister's house and address a sin issue or ask them, you know, why? I, I, 
I, why haven't I seen you for the last couple of weeks, right? Like, that's what it means to live together in community. Me caring for you, me interacting with you, you interacting with me, you loving me. I just, I, I want to be with you. And there's a lot of things that, you know, that more that you can say about it. That, like, this is not, it's not easy. You're different than me. I might not normally choose to hang out with you, you know. Um, you might not, I might not be the kind of person that you want to hang out with. I'm, I'm sure when you get to know me, you, you will find that I'm not the kind of person that you want to hang out with. But, but being together in community means that you spend time together. This is the only way that the church is built. There isn't, a, there isn't another one. And nobody, can, nobody yet has come up with a better plan than this. And I want to I encourage you, Harvest, today because some of the kinds of community that, that, uh, that we're describing exist here already. Church plants generally have uh, pretty committed people. And most of you... Um, know that church planting is difficult. Most of you, you know, you have walked through this longer than I have. Um, but I want to exhort you to want more, all right? I'm not telling you to do more. I'm, I'm, I'm really addressing here desires. I want you to desire more than you have. I want you to want more than you have, right? Church planting's hard. It's easy to become discouraged in well-doing when there's so much well-doing to do. But the kind of community that happens in the process of the church being built into this spiritual temple goes deeper. It produces richer friendships. It results in greater transparency and love. This is worth pursuing. It's not, it, it is not living independent lives, but interdependent lives and just practically speaking one of the ways that uh, you can do this in a lot of ways but one of the ways that we want to do this here at Kelowna is or at Harvest Kelowna is in our small group ministry we want our people um, to foster this kind of community and we want we want to do it through our small groups. And, and we recognize that this kind of community doesn't happen instantly. You're not just going to become best friends the, the first day that you show up at, at uh, your, your small group leader's home, right? It's going to take time. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take a commitment to vulnerability. And ultimately, it's going to take a commitment to just obeying God. And it's not going to be easy, but, but this is... This is the church's identity. This is what we want your identity to be. So we, we've looked at who you are, the church's identity. Now we want to look at what do you do? What, how does the church conduct itself? What does it do in the world? What do these communities do? And let's go back to the text and look, uh, just have a look at what it is that we do as as a community of believers. And, and uh, I, I love this text. I, I was really tempted to shorten this from 4 to 10 and just look at 4 to 10. But 11 and 12, um, they go in a, in, a, in a different direction. And I think it really dovetails with uh, the whole idea of community and, and what it is that we do. 
And, and what this text does is it really gets the, so many things right. It really walks through two, and Meldon was talking about how we can fall off on the ditch on either side. And this really walks through two errors, right? Two errors that the, that the church is prone to. So in verse 11 and 12, we see um, the first thing that we notice is that uh, Peter is addressing uh, his audience as sojourners. What is, I have to remember what uh, this translates, as sojourners and exiles, or strangers and aliens. And I'm going to camp out on those words, strangers, strangers and aliens. But how does, how does people, and how does Peter end up here? He's talked about this living stone, and now he's sort of transitioned into something new. Now he's talking about strangers and aliens. How does he get there? Why does he switch? Well, we see the beginnings of this in, back in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, um, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders rejected the cornerstone. There's opposition. In verse 8, the stone has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The stone is now offensive. And we know how this works out in history. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Right? So he offered the good news to anyone who would, would receive it. So he, he turned his back on Israel, and he opens his arms and offers the gospel freely to whoever would receive it. And that's you Anyone who believes. And this is good news. We see it in verses 6 and 7. Those who believe receive honor and will never be, be put to shame. That, is, that really is good news. Anybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus receives honor and will never be put to shame. But notice that in the process of becoming God's people, you end up rejected by the same people who rejected Jesus. So, like Jesus, you become outsiders. You become strangers. You become aliens. To identify with Jesus is, is to become an alien. That's what it means. That's, that's just one of the ways that you can say, I'm a follower of Jesus. When you say that, you're also saying, I'm an alien. I'm a stranger. I'm a foreigner. Now, we need to know what an alien is. The best example that I can, could come up with is my, our, own, our own example, our own, lives, for the, our own lives. For the last six years, we have been called resident aliens. We've been living in the U.S. And, uh, and you know, it took us six years to actually figure out what a resident alien was. And, and it was, uh, I mean, they made it difficult for you to find out what that means. But what, at the end of the day, what it means is that we can live we, we could go to school, we could even earn income, or at least some income, we could make friends, and for all intents and purposes, we, we could blend into American society, but we don't have U.S. citizenship, and this is exactly what Peter means in the text. To be an alien is to be committed to living in a country, and making money, and paying taxes, and having neighbors talking about politics, raising children, buying meat in the marketplace, and getting to know your butcher. I mean, that's what it means to be a resident alien. But you're still an outsider. You're still outside. You still don't have U.S. 
citizenship. You can't vote. And in Bible terms, the Bible would say you are in the world, but you're not of the world. And if we look back at the text, we see that, that Peter is urging the church to do two things in light of this. All right? Verse, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to do this. To abstain from the passions of the flesh or to keep your conduct pure which wages war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see the second thing that he calls us to do? Or it's really kind of implied there, but you, the church also has, does these good deeds, right? We keep our conduct pure, but the Gentiles are also going to glorify God because of the good deeds that we do. And uh, this, this raises a, an interesting sociological phenomenon or a sociological issue. There are two tendencies in societies, right? There's the tendency to, to isolate and there's the tendency to assimilate. And we see this in, in our churches. In fact, if you look everywhere in society, you see these two tendencies. Mainstream de- denominations tend to assimilate. They look like society. They welcome people in. They draw, they don't draw lines in the sand. They don't exclude, right? They welcome the adulterer. They welcome the homosexual, the Hindu and the Mormon, the atheist and the pagan, the homeless and the drug addict, people with HIV and hep C. They feed the poor. They build houses for the homeless and advocate for the helpless. And the reason they do that is because they believe they believe that the world is us. That's, that's why they do it. They see the world as themselves. In contrast, sectarian groups or fundamentalist groups, and, and this happens in Muslim, uh, in the Muslim faith, this happens in Hindu faith, this happens just in society in general. But sectarian groups separate themselves from the world, right? They see the world in terms of us and them. They define it that way. And they draw lines and they define themselves by those who oppose them. We're not this. And they separate themselves from the forces that they think would corrupt them. But notice what Peter is calling the church to do. This is unbelievable. This is Countercultural. He is calling the church to practice both of these things, to keep themselves pure and to do good deeds. This is absolutely amazing. P- Peter is effectively saying that the church is going to do all the good things that the mainline denominations do and maintain its purity, like the fundamentalists. And you, you, and, and you know how this is going to go down. When you live like this, they're both going to hate you, right? Good deeds get a, a bad rap um, in, our, in our church. Often, not always, but often get a bad rap in our churches. But, but this clearly isn't um, in the text. The text perfectly explains the two ways that God sanctifies believers. First, when God makes people alive in Christ, his spirit that indwells people, leads them to hate sin, right? And so the first part in verse 11, his encouragement to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
that totally makes sense because um, we, we're at war with the world. We're, we have, we're at war with the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians chapter 6 is telling us to put on God's armor so that we can withstand the attacks of the evil one, right? Galatians chapter 5 tells us there, that there is a war between the flesh and the spirit. When God puts his spirit in us, we hate the things of the flesh. We hate sin. And, that, and God le- sanctifies us in that way. But it's, it, sanctification isn't just purity. It isn't just me not hating sin and not being like the world in its, in its sinful um, habits. It also causes believers to want to spread God's love around a little bit. They have received so much love that they are, they've now become um, wells springing up, right? Overflowing. And the natural, the only thing that a believer can do when they are inundated, when they are overwhelmed, when they are flooded by God's love, is to pour out. And it comes out in good deeds. So you, the church, are aliens, but you're not acting like aliens, right? So I'm going to say this. You are unalienated aliens, all right? That's a mouthful, and that should, that should leave you thinking for a while, but that's what you are. You are unalienated aliens. That's what you want to be in the church. That's what we need to be in this world. So I don't want you to think that this is heady stuff. Jesus did this stuff, okay? He perfectly walked this line between, between being in the world but not of the world. Jesus was full of love and good deeds. He lived his life um, perfectly and pleased his pa- father perfectly. So he was totally holy and yet he was also full of good works. We see this over and over and over again. He's visiting the Samaritan woman in uh, John chapter 4. He's talking, first of all, to a woman, and he's talking to a Samaritan. The mainline denominations eat this stuff up, right? This is, this is what, this is countercultural to them. You go out into the world and you, and you mix with sinners, right? But Jesus was also totally holy, right? He, he ate with sinners and tax collectors, but he wasn't like them. He was totally different. The church, the New Testament church did this as well. So there's, there's all of these things that we have um, from history that, that really tell us about the, the character of the New Testament church. They didn't fornicate. They didn't practice adultery. They didn't practice homosexuality. That, those things were all weird to the Roman Empire, people in the Roman Empire, right? They didn't worship other gods. That actually got them in a lot of trouble. Um, they kept the Lord's day. And the sectarians or the fundamentalists would, would, would cheer loudly and say, yes, they're, they're separate from the world. But look at what else they did, right? They integrated classes, right? They got rid of slaves worshipped with their masters. Rich people worshipped with poor people, right? They, uh, they looked after orphans and widows. They took, it was a practice in, New Te- in the New Testament church in the Roman times for uh, Fathers who didn't want a child or the child was the wrong sex to leave them exposed, right? To really just throw them in the garbage heap. 
And the Christian churches would go out and collect these babies. And they were, and they were, they were for orphans and widows, right? They integrated classes. They welcomed strangers. They cared for the poor. And, and, that, and the mainline denominations would love that. They would cheer for that. And the church is to do both of these things. This is what it looks like to be the church. So the last thing that we want to look at is how do we do, do this? What is the church's power? Where does it, where does it come from? So we see in the text that everyone is building a life. Okay, Notice in verse 7 it says... Um, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone is building a life. The, 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 uh, the builders, um, they're building. They just don't like the cornerstone. But, but they're still going to build a building. And even, like as we apply that to ourselves, every one of us is building a structure. They're building a life. Everybody has a foundation in which they are, their life rests on or what their life rests on. And the question that we need to ask is, what is our cornerstone? What is it that we're building our life on? And I would say this to you. A cornerstone is that area of your life which, if it fell apart, your life would be destroyed. Let me illustrate this to you. Back in the fall of this year, the police noticed a uh, significant rise in the suicide rate in Calgary. And what they found is that men in the, who, were, who had jobs in the oil sectors uh, were taking their lives at a noticeably higher rate than normal. And clearly it was because they, you know, these men had lost everything in their lives. And this, just, this illustrates the kinds of cornerstones that we can build our lives on. For these men, their cornerstone was their wealth and their business. And when their cornerstone crumbled, their world fell apart. And they, and they did the only logical thing in their mind. Now, maybe it was extreme, but the, all that reveals is how, um, how firmly they had based their entire life on this cornerstone. This was it. If this crumbled, they had nothing left. So how do you know what your cornerstone is? Ask yourself this. What, what, what area of your life would you sin in order to get something? Or to prevent something from happening? Or uh, to prevent someone from finding out something about it? What area of, of your life would you sin in order to get this? Is your reputation, I, I, this, I could go on and on with this list. I'm just going to give us a few things to think about here. Is your reputation your cornerstone? Some people build their whole lives on their reputation. Would you lie to protect your reputation? Would you lie to get into school? Would you lie to keep a job? Even a, even a white lie, would, would you do that? Or is the respect of other people your cornerstone? Do you not take your kids to certain places or people's houses because of how you think they might perceive you? Do you not say something at work because you're afraid of what um, other people, your coworkers might think? Um, 
Maybe it's the opposite. Do you say things at work or in your families in order to um, impress your boss or impress somebody or, or gain, a, gain standing? Is having control over your, over your life your cornerstone, right? Is having a successful family so important to you that you will dominate or control your husband or your wife or your children through fear or tears or pity? The, there's a thousand ways that we build our lives on a cornerstone. But ev- the bottom line is everybody is building a life and they're building it on something. And the first place that we've got to come to to know the power to live as Christians in community together is to, is to know what foundation we're building on. But it's not just enough to know that Jesus is the foundation, right? Or it's not enough to just say that, you know, I, I trust in Jesus. You must find Jesus precious. And we see this in the text. In verse 16, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those who believe in this cornerstone, the cornerstone who is Jesus, right? They, he's a precious cornerstone. They're coming to him because they know that when they put their trust in Jesus, their, their cornerstone will never be removed. It will never shake. It will never crumble. They will never be ashamed. Coming to, to Christ is, is not saying a prayer. It's not writing a date on a card. It's not clinging to that card like a rabbit's foot. It's not a camp experience. It's not a 12-step program. Those are all things that you do. The only reason to come to Jesus is because you find him precious. That's, that's the only reason. That's the, and that's the only way that he's going to accept you. Just to give you a, to illustrate this, and uh, I, I borrowed this illustration from Tim Keller, and I think it's very helpful to understand what it means to find something precious. Um, let's say that you were dying of cancer, and I told you that I had a drug for you that would cure you, but it was going to cost you everything, right? You'd have to sell your house. You'd have to move in with your parents. You'd have to sell your car, right? You'd have to buy a bus ticket or trans- bus tram- or a bike or something like that to get around. But you would say to me, well, what's a house? What does a house mean to me when I'm dying? Or what does a car mean to me when I'm, when I'm dying, right? This medicine that you're offering me is, is my hope. It's my life. It's precious. And I, I'll sell everything to get it. That's what Jesus has to become to us. He has to become that precious. We have got to get to the place where we see that our cornerstone will fail, right? It cannot support the weight of our hopes. Any cornerstone that is not Christ will crumble. It will either crumble in this life or it will crumble at the day of judgment when we face Christ. What is, the, what is the last thing that we need to do? So, 
what is it? The church's power. We've got to recognize that Jesus is the cornerstone. We've got to see him as precious. And we also have to come to him and line ourselves up with him. As you come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, we have got to come to Jesus. In verse 7, Jesus is rejected by the builders. And you see, Jesus left his throne in heaven at his Father's side to come and bring you home. And when you see that you were valued so much that he willingly laid his life down to pay your ransom, to buy you back out of slavery to sin, then you're ready to come to him. He was rejected for you. He became an alien for you. But he didn't alienate himself from the world. No, on the contrary, he came to the world and he poured himself out unto death. He shared his life with his disciples. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. Jesus was an unalienated alien. He wasn't like the world, but he lived among the world. He came to solve your problem. He took on the limitations of, of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful, but he suffered, he endured. He, he knows what it means to be a man. For you, he, was, he faced every temptation to identify with you. And when you understand that Jesus has left heaven for you, that he became an alien for you, you will trust him as your cornerstone. When you understand that he came to live and among and heal sinners, you will seek to be like him, an unalienated alien. So where does this leave you? You must come to him. If you have found Jesus precious, then it leaves you affirmed. I mean, just think about this. Here is, here is a God who has solved every problem that, that you face. You don't even know what the important problems are, and he's solved them for you. Here's a God who left heaven. There is, he, didn't, he didn't hold anything back to come and get you, to come and rescue you. When you know the God who has done that, you are confident in his love. Romans chapter 8 says um, that he who gave up his own son for us all, how will he not also along with Jesus graciously give us all things? God gave us his best already. There's nothing, there's nothing that he won't give us that, that even compares with his best. Everything else is a guarantee. You leave when you know a God who has done that, when you know a Savior who, can, who loved you so much that he was willing to leave his Father to get you, you you're, you're confident, right? You don't care what anyone thinks. This is power that Jesus, the unalienated alien, has received you. 
Knowing this, you are now able to go out into the world and be an unalienated alien. But, 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 you don't go yourselves. You don't go alone. You are part of the church. You are part of a community of unalienated aliens who all have the same experience as you do. All having come to Jesus Christ. All having built their life on this cornerstone. And now it's only natural. This is, this is the heartbeat of a Christian to look, to have your lives look like his, both in terms of purity and good deeds. And your power, your power is increased as you see the power of Jesus' love transforming your brothers and sisters. May God build us into that kind of people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for um, your love. Just pouring your love out on your people. God, you loved your church and you are pursuing it. And though it may look weak, though it may be weak, Father, this is the way that you are going to reach the nations. God, build your church. Build this church. Build Harvest Kelowna, Father, I, I am a broken man who only does these things not even half well. And, and this is a church of broken people. We need you to do this, Father. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.